Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to today's episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and I am always grateful that you're listening to this podcast, so thank you for being here. This week, I'm going to talk a little bit about news out of the UK that could result in online companies facing billion-pound fines for not preventing fraud. I hope that nobody is having a panic attack right now. I will go into the details. It's not every online company, but they're definitely, this could be the first of many headlines like this. And so I'm going to go into details of what the legislation is proposing, who it's going to impact, really what to consider around this. Is it a good idea? What they're going to measure? Just, I have about five pages of notes, you guys, so... It's going to be a deep dive on this article. Uh, I think it's a fascinating topic. And I know that regulations are something that everyone in fraud has been concerned about for years because there are regulations in money laundering. There are regulations in banking. For the most part, e-commerce, you know, the commerce part, the payments, as well as the content have been untouched in the majority of countries internationally. So do think that this could be a trend and wanted to deep dive in it and think that you guys will find it interesting and fascinating. If you did not listen to my most recent episode this past Tuesday with Diana Gajic Physic from JD Sports North America, previously known as Finish Line, I highly recommend it. I know that one of the biggest challenges for fraud fighters, for retailers, as well as for fintech and you know, everything in between, especially on the online and digital side, is feeling like we've built credibility within our company, working with other, you know, cross-functional teams, having them understand the importance of what we do and why it matters and how they can help and be of impact. So Diana's a dear friend of mine. I think you will all enjoy listening to her if you haven't already. And just a little quick tease for next week. I'm pretty excited about this interview. To be honest, it hasn't happened yet, but I had a conversation with the interviewee today. He was a little nervous about, not nervous, but just wanted to kind of get prepared for the podcast interview and and wanted to make sure that he, you know, knew what to expect and, and all of that. And we ended up talking for almost two hours. So hopefully we can duplicate some of the conversation, but The subject of my interview is going to be the head of fraud and strategy analytics for a major U.S. retailer. And he has some unique work experience and perspective that I think a lot of you will enjoy. I always really enjoy speaking with him. And he's not someone that's been in the online fraud world and community that long. So I think a lot of you will get to meet and know him. And if you're going to conferences, you know, in the near future, For those that are in person, you may just get to meet him or see him speak. So anyway, that's something to look forward to on Tuesday. And I 
As I start to talk about this news headline, I thought it was kind of funny. I had made the decision for 2022 that with this second episode on Thursdays, I don't want it to always be news. I don't think that that's sustainable. There's not always that many articles and news that impacts our industry. Obviously, today's a little different, so I will be sprinkling them. But I'm also going to mix in some deep dives into specific fraud trends, such as triangulation fraud, account takeover fraud, the differences and similarities between referral fraud and affiliate fraud, just all kinds of things like that. If there's a specific one, oh, I know loyalty fraud is something that several people have wanted me to talk about. Uh, I will be having guests on soon, hopefully, to talk more about crypto and NFT fraud. Those are things that I've heard listeners wanting to hear, and I really appreciate the content suggestions. On that note, the other format of podcast episodes I will have been mixed in on Thursdays are Ask Carice Anything episodes. I will be bringing those back, I know, by popular demand or somewhat popular demand. Those that I hear from have appreciated those. If you do have a question that you'd like to submit for that, you can do so on my LinkedIn. I believe I'm the only Carice Hendrick, and if you need to know how to spell it, it is in the show notes. Uh, so I was planning on doing that and I texted my producer today, letting him know that I was going to uh, do a fraud trends episode today because I didn't really think there were that many headlines about fraud. And then maybe two hours later, I see this headline about the UK proposing legislation to fine online companies billions of dollars or billions of pounds, their dollars. And for not preventing online fraud. And I thought, well, there goes that. I'll use that episode outline for another time. But I do write out my outlines for these podcasts. It just helps me stay focused. I don't always read them, but it just kind of keeps me on track and make sure that I, you know, say what I want to say and in the right order, because that's important as well. And just so I'm not all over the place, like it can be often. And in writing this out, it was five pages. So we'll see how we got. <laughs> you might. But I do think that it's really interesting. Oh, my gosh. Before I forget, I want to make sure that I thank Sion for sponsoring this episode. I know I'll be talking about them soon in an advertisement, but I really appreciate their support and belief in this little project. Uh, I guess it's not little. I found out recently when my producer was doing some stats and comparisons that by download numbers, this podcast is in the top 10% of all podcasts. So I am not going to be anywhere near that top 2% or even top 5%. I'm shocked I'm in the top 10. I do kind of joke that it's probably because a lot of people started podcasts and didn't finish them or just haven't grown an audience. But still, I will take it. And it's because of you guys listening. So thank you again. I always let you know I'm grateful, but I really, really am. And whenever I get a note, which is almost daily from people who listen to this podcast, I it makes my day. So anyway, thank you, Sion, for supporting the podcast and allowing me to really spend more time and focus on the programming for this platform. I really appreciate it. Okay, so let's dive into this one headline. I usually try to have like three news stories, but like I said, I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. <clears throat> so, and I'm really interested to hear yours as well. So again, the headline is tech companies could face billion pound fines for not preventing online fraud. 
I will absolutely include a link to this original story in the show notes. But basically, to kind of give you an overview, Ofcom, which is spelled O-F-C-O-M, is the UK's communications regulator. I think most Western countries have a regulator, regulatory entity that is looking at communications. Here in the U.S., it's the FCC, Communications Commission. Oh my gosh, I should have written that out, but I think it's something like that. They're introducing, Ofcom in the U.K. is introducing legislation in hopes to incentivize online search engines and social media companies to proactively reduce online fraud on their platforms. It's really to encourage these specific companies and with this business plan to implement systems and processes to prevent fraudulent advertisements being posted on their sites, as well as fraudulent postings. So in the fraud industry, four companies that have what I refer to as user-generated content. So it doesn't go through an editor. It doesn't go through any process. It's just, you know, instantly posted, right? Social media is a perfect example of that. Anyone that has user-generated content should and often does have a content moderation entity or department within fraud, separate from fraud. It really depends. So this is more around content moderation than it is payment fraud. It also, as I just mentioned, does not impact every online company in this specific legislation. It's primarily focused on online search engines and social media companies. So here comes the stick. I don't know if everyone's heard the, you know, the expression. It comes up a lot in parenting. Like you can either incentivize with a carrot or a stick, which means like a good thing, like an incentive for, you know, something good. If you achieve something, you will get something good or a punishment if you don't do what you're supposed to. So in this case, it's in quotation marks, a stick. <laughs> If these companies don't comply, they could be fined up to 10% of their global profits. And they'll have to name a director who is overseeing this, these efforts. And that director could face up to two years in prison if the companies don't give Ofcom the information it needs to carry out investigations. Especially, you know, the article indicated that this would include social media companies if they don't comply with Ofcom investigations into specific cases such as extremism, online child abuse, self-harm, and other really dangerous things that are often posted on social media and within search engines and, and other places. The legislation plans are expected to be further detailed within weeks as part of the UK government's duty of care bill. Under this bill in the UK, new online crimes will be introduced, including posting messages that convey a threat of serious harm or the publishing of misinformation that could cause emotional, physical or psychological harm. <laughs> these are kind of broad, but I think we can all think of cases that we have seen these. So uh, both at a global scale, as well as just in our personal lives. This bill is expected to be criticized by members of parliament for not going far enough. But I'm almost positive it's also going to be criticized by online companies that are, you know, will be impacted by this. 
because for being too aggressive. So it's hard to know the outcome of a bill on this topic, but it's something I'll be keeping an eye on and we'll keep you guys posted as any new developments, any new major developments come. It is possible that this headline was, or this article was announced and provided, you know, kind of almost as a threat sort of to these online companies and social media companies. Oftentimes these type of articles or news announcements that are trying to read the tea leaves or saying something is coming down the road is often, you know, put into the media by organizations to incentivize companies to be proactive or to incentivize them to work with them on lessening the extreme pieces of the bill. So really coming to a compromise. So it's hard to know what the actual bill will be and what will be passed. But I do think it definitely makes a point that the UK government is wanting to put some accountability at play for social media companies and search engines for what is posted on their sites. So that could be interesting and is definitely a debated topic that I will cover as I go into some of my own questions. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. and comments. So as I go into my own questions and comments, there's one story that I considered telling in relation to especially false advertising and ad fraud. And I think I shared this story, I don't know, last year, who knows, between my previous podcast and this podcast. I've lost count of exactly which stories I've told. So I apologize if you've heard this before, but I also have a lot new listeners since the beginning. So 
In my very first role in risk, I worked for a merchant processor that did the processing for a very popular bank in the San Francisco and Silicon Valley area. It's very popular and used by startups and tech companies for all of their banking. And at the time, they outsourced their merchant services to the company that I worked for. They now do it in-house, but this was 8 million years ago or actually 16, but it feels like 8 million years ago. Uh, so a lot has changed both in technology and in my previous company and, and that bank's relationship and all of that. But anyway, I was handed this portfolio in technology and e-commerce because quite honestly, I was the youngest person on the team and nobody else wanted it. Everyone else felt more comfortable looking at risk on card present transactions, and I don't blame them, but I got thrown in the deep end and learned how to swim, and that pretty much sums up the rest of my career, too. But anyway, one of the companies that I was assigned was this really small company, but it had really interesting <laughs> transaction activity, but that's another story for another day. It was called Facebook. At the time, most people I knew, actually, I think everyone I knew at the time was using MySpace, not Facebook. So I famously told my coworkers after getting off the phone with Mark, yes, he was my point of contact, that, you know, this guy thinks he's going to be the next MySpace, which my previous coworkers that I still keep in touch with really like to remind me about that. But I'm like, well, that's why I'm not in the stock market. I'm not predicting who's going to succeed and who's not. And there were a lot of other startups that did very well and that were, you know, well-known. But the reason I bring up this story isn't to toot my own horn or anything, but it's just to kind of relate about online fraud and online advertising fraud. This is one of my only experiences with it. I know several of you have worked specifically in advertising fraud. That is a topic that I want to bring in an expert on soon. I have one in mind. But anyway, basically this social media company, Facebook, was posting ads in real time. And so somebody could order an ad, put in the graphics that they wanted to put in that ad, put in a credit card, pay for, you know, however long the ad ran, et cetera. And it would just auto post on the site. And I, I think that that still happens, but I also know there's a significant amount of technology now that goes into place as well as some human review, et cetera. But at the time when I explained to Mark that the chargebacks were extremely high, way too high for them. And the bank was getting concerned. But he explained to me that he only had two employees in his loft apartment and couldn't hire someone to manually review every ad that came on. So I had to work with him to train and bring someone on. I can't remember if they were an intern or what, but I explained that if you want to continue accepting credit cards for your site, you have to put something in place. Because when you look at these ads, they're obvious, but they are fraudulent. And some of them were fraudulent in a way where they were advertising a product, asking people to give them all their information, including their payment details. And then that product would never come, but their credit card would later be stolen. Other times it was really, I want to say yucky, but just like inappropriate and exploitive content. And so for a lot of reasons that needed to be put in place. Now, these days, like I said, you can put technology in place, but back then there really wasn't anything that was scanning content like that. So it had to be a human. And they did put that in place. I mean, ironically, there a significant amount of the advertising fraud was um, from Russia at the time. They did do a lot of things to 
curb that. And they still have. I know many people at that team. I know many people at most, if not all, social media companies and several at search engine companies. So certainly not trying to disparage them. I know that the volume and the content is tough. It is tough to be able to moderate everything that's put in a website and user-generated content. Even for some e-commerce websites that are selling items like clothes and others that have reviews, they have to moderate their content because you you know never know what somebody's going to put in a comment. I mean, even some of the marketplaces where they have users posting a listing of items. I've heard some crazy horror stories about the items that they're listing or the descriptions that they're placing, um, especially around children. So anyway, it's a it's not always a bright and sunny world full of rainbows. Often it isn't, especially when we're in this world. So anyway, I just kind of share that story just to share some context and also just the importance of that, right? Oftentimes online content is not paid for by their own credit card. So there is some overlap in payment fraud as well. Uh, and I guess that's another reason for sharing that story. Also, I guess that's just another reason why I am sometimes referred to as the fraud historian, because I feel like throughout my career, I've been able to see a lot of changes. But so have a lot of people that have been in this industry more than 10 years. So it's certainly not just me. I'm just very lucky to have a 10,000 foot view. So especially for the last decade and kind of be able to see it from a different perspective. So anyway, there's a part of me that agrees with this proposed bill. I do think that there needs to be a continued effort to moderate content online. I know it is challenging. That is the other piece of me that says, well, this is not easy to do. It's not like these companies are just you know, not doing anything. Now, are they self-regulated and are they doing enough? I mean, that's not up to me to decide. That is the pay grade of a, par a member of parliament in the UK. <laughs> you know, they, they do have abuse and content moderation teams who often do the best they can within their company. Would they be able to do more if their company allowed them to? I mean, yeah, in most cases, yes. But as I talked with Diana last Tuesday or this past Tuesday, like I, you know, it's not always that easy, right? It takes a lot of tough conversations and sometimes it's just not possible. I have definitely heard of some internal conversations within some of these companies and some people have left because they've felt like their company didn't do enough, but I'm not passing judgment here. So I don't want anyone to contact me and, and get that. I'm certainly, you know, there's only one name that I named and that's because I worked with them and that was 16 years ago. And I don't think there are any repercussions for me sharing that story. I waited over a decade to even share that story with anyone. So I don't think there's any repercussions there. I'm very curious to learn what metrics that these decisions will be based on what the decisions and the fines and especially the imprisonment could be based on. I mean, it sounds like the imprisonment is in situations where if the government and the regulatory office of Ofcom is able to or is requesting information in specific situations, you know, like IP addresses and device ID and any other identifying information of people who are posting extremist videos or, you know, 
beheadings and mass shootings live on their site. I mean, there's been all kinds of things like that. If they're asking for those things or, or, you know, child endangerment, things like that, and the director doesn't respond, then I think that's where the imprisonment comes in. I don't think a director is going to be imprisoned if they don't comply with the rules. But that is strictly my interpretation of this short article. But will there be standards for moderating or deleting specific content or do they just kind of have to figure it out? Are there metrics around like specific a rate that they have to stay under similar to chargeback rate? I, I, I don't know what that is for content moderation. If anyone has any ideas, I'd love to hear it. I think that that's going to, I just think it's going to be really, really tricky to enforce. For the most part, content standards and moderation are self-governed and often profits play a part in the policies, processes, and decisions made in these areas. Also, it's taken a long while for technology to catch up with moderating content in a systematic way, and it's still not perfect. Some of the ways that content is moderated include having AI and ML looking at keywords within posts or within videos or ads or whatever the posting is uh, in user-generated content. But online users quickly learn to get away with it. Like, my daughter's not going to be happy that I out this if if these entities didn't know it already. But she was telling me a few months ago that she loves to watch Broadway shows on recordings on you know some video apps. And I said, well, isn't that you know licensed and isn't that you know not okay? And you know don't they get taken down? And she said, no, because they're just called slime videos. It might say slime video. Beetlejuice or Slime Tutorial Hamilton. And that's how they get around the keyword algorithm because they know that a lot of websites are, are depending on technology. So it, it's good, but it's not great. It's not a set it and forget it type thing. In addition to keywords and, and other, you know, artificial intelligence systems, and I know that some of the companies have their own proprietary and I'm not sharing all those details that I know. And there's a lot of details that I don't. But, you know, just kind of overall standards within the industry. Oh, the other issue with keywords. Sorry, I noted this in the kind of in the margin and I forgot to mention it. It also can have some false declines. There is actually someone who produces a lot of content on LinkedIn and is followed by tens of thousands of people that had a post taken down because they had the word hunting in it. Now, I don't I never saw the specific post, so it could have been graphic. I don't know. But their theory and what they shared was that they were told that their post was inappropriate because it included the word hunting. He took his son hunting. I don't, again, I didn't see the full post. So there may have been more to it. I don't know if there was a picture of them doing that. That would definitely warrant it more. But anyway, I mean, he was definitely upset about that and posted quite a bit about that. So there are false declines as well. You know, what if someone posts something with a keyword that is marked as bad and then it gets shut down and then they get mad and tell all their followers? Like, it's a very... I guess what I'm trying to say in a lot of words is that this is very nuanced. It is not an exact science. Content moderation is probably one of the most challenging things for any online company with user-generated content to get under control. I'm not saying that it doesn't need to happen. I'm just saying it's easier said than done. And sometimes when there's regulations from outside government forces, they think you just snap your fingers or you wave your magic wand or that there's something else that can be done. 
I do think that there is more that can be done, but do I think that it can reach all the standards that they're setting? I don't know. And again, I don't know what those standards are because the benchmarks are going to be sticky. Oh, oh, so in addition to keywords, manual reviews of content is time consuming, but time consuming, but can often, you know, be a layered approach to this and often is, but it's impossible to keep up with everything that's posted in a timely way. And so often they have to resort to being reactive versus proactive by looking at user reports, right? And users marking something as inappropriate, which also is can be flawed, but there's never, there's just not a perfect approach to content moderation that I know of yet. I would love to stumble upon it, but just like with fraud prevention on the payment side, it's not exactly an exact science. It's a trial and error. <laughs> And it's a layered approach with multiple layers. And we all do the best we can. At least that's what I try to assume. But in addition to it being time, like just time consuming, it can also be really psychologically damaging to the reviewers. I know some of these companies provide an extensive amount of mental health support and that the tenure, sorry, I was going to say the shelf life. And that's that's not accurate when we're talking about humans. The tenure of employees that are manually reviewing content and doing content moderation is much shorter than most tenures in tech. And I don't blame them. I know some people that have done stints in that, and it can be really damaging. I mean, there's a lot of things that you don't ever see that people are trying to put up on these websites, whether it's terrorist groups or child predators. There's a lot there, and I've heard horror stories, but I will not be sharing with them you with them because it's just not that kind of podcast. But I'm sure you can, you know, understand, and your mind can take you places. So I don't need to fill in the blanks there. Most of them are relying on a combination of AI and ML, as long as well as human reviews, and then in addition, user reports. But it's like I said, it's not a perfect process. Like I said, I'm not trying to say that these companies should make their own rules on what's acceptable behavior in society, but I'm also not saying that this bill will be easy to create a policy to comply or to enforce it. Also, while this proposed legislation is currently targeting search engines and social media companies, it doesn't mean that all other online companies and business models are in the clear. One other story I wanted to share, and I talked about, I know I talked about this, at the beginning of 2021 because it greatly impacted my life. But I have not talked about all of the fallout because it's just a lot. And, you know, I purposely, while I share a little bit of my personal life on this podcast, this is primarily focused on fraud fighting. It's not, you know, about the life and times of Curry's. But in the, I think I am well positioned to talk about the impact of user-generated content in social media and search engines because of what happened with my daughter this last year. I don't even know I lost track, but in fall of 2018, I want to say, it may have been fall of 2019, but I think it was fall of 2018. My daughter was 15 and she saw an advertisement from a production company that does YouTube videos in Seattle she really want you know that she really enjoyed in looking for high schoolers to do a challenge video. It was kind of like a human behavior, like you know, 
one of you gets a prize, but there's several of you. And she didn't know the other people involved. I brought her there. I signed the release form. She, you know, it was not going to be that big of a video, right? Like, it's just, okay, it's a fun thing. You know, we had a conversation about it before, many conversations before. But this was something that was really important to her. And she was in drama at school and just, you know, wanted to do something fun and different. I thought, well, you know, she had up to that point always wanted to be a YouTube star. So, okay, fine. So I took her there. She met the kids. They recorded for about two and a half hours. Uh, A few months later, they and, and they had mentioned this was the first time they'd done this with high schoolers. Before that, it had been like people in their 20s all the way up to 70s. I think they did one a similar challenge with drag queens. Like there's just they did different types of things and they were mostly focused on human behavior. I'm not a big YouTube watcher, but, you know, anyway, that's not important. I'm old, so that's why. <laughs> But anyway, this video didn't come out till a few months later. And it just kind of, you know, it went out. We saw it. There were, oh, a few hundred thousand views. And her and the other kids that were on this video did like a little, I don't know, they tagged each other on their Instagram. And then that was it. Like, it was just really not a big deal. But during the pandemic, I believe it was late January, early February of last year. So almost a year ago. My daughter woke up to just a bazillion notifications on her social media. It was insane. Legitimately, she went from 140 followers to over 30,000 in less than a week. And because this video was heavily edited and they moved some of the timelines around and she can be, you know, kind of dramatic and extra. But also there was just a lot of context that was missing because they edited down two and a half hours to 15 minutes. And there was something that someone had said before the camera was rolling that was upsetting to my child. And so that played a part. Anyway, my child will be the first one to say that that wasn't her best best self. And she was 15. She's now almost 18. There's been a lot of maturity since then. But she instantly became the villain of this video when it got reposted on another social media site that has shorter video clips. And it was like wildfire for weeks. It was just insane. She was getting death threats. We, at one point, well, we learned that there's a setting in her phone that needed to be changed. So I had lo- location settings locked down on her app, but apparently had to do it on her phone as well. And so a few people were able to reverse engineer. Like, I think she only posted five pictures ever on her social media before this and even after, but they had reverse engineered that photo and found out where our house was and took a screenshot of Google Maps to scare her. There were, I can't even tell you all the things that were said. It was so horrible and it really impacted her mental health. It impacted everything. I mean, down to the fact that even if she wants to go to our local mall and wears a hat and a face mask, because we're in COVID times, she still gets recognized and asked for selfies. Like she's become this weird social media like i don't know it's almost like a what am i thinking of like a social i i can't think of it right now but like basically some kind of an icon or whatever pop culture icon i guess is what i was gonna say but in a make fun of her way not in a way that people think she's great i actually don't think it's that bad but it was just i think it was the timing i think it was the comments on it i think it was the resurgence I think it also had a lot to do with the fact that kids were still in lockdown at that point and they just had a lot of aggression and there was just a lot of nastiness in the world. 
Anyway, for the last year, we've been dealing with the effects of all of the online bullying. And even yesterday, so she's had all of her social media on private. She hasn't posted anything. She has one or two social media accounts that she has done a really good job at keeping private and unknown. But somebody found her on another social media site and then another one as well and took screenshots and posted them on the same platform from before. And so yesterday, just yesterday, she had like a bazillion more requests on these private you know, channels and a couple of people were trying to catfish her. Like, it's just been a nightmare. If I, I don't even know how else to explain it. I, there's so many nuances, but I guess I don't like talking about her personal life. I know this has been one of the hardest challenges for my daughter as well as for our family, but I share it because there is a real world impact on, on the lack of content moderation. Now, I have to say when I did contact these social media sites, they t- did what they could Um, But there's not a lot that they can do. I mean, it's just the way our world works now. I wish that parents were more involved. I don't know. And honestly, there were a lot of adults writing her too when all of this blew up. There were people saying, if you were my kid, I'd blah, blah, blah. I mean, please, people, can we learn to treat people with respect? I know that the internet is a place where, you know, it provides anonymity. uh, And so people are more comfortable just being nasty. But to a young teenager this is really hard it, it's really hard on adults as well so that is one reason why I do think that having some legislation is good not just because it impacted my family but because I know it's impacted so many other families and people and it has led to suicides and mental health issues and thank goodness it didn't lead to a much worse ending but it has been costly it has been emotional. It has been a challenge for all four of her parents and uh, as I'm divorced and mostly for her. And she has a hard time knowing who she can trust now or who's just trying to be her friend because she's sort of famous. But it definitely wasn't worth the 15 minutes or really the couple of years now. So anyway, I don't really know how to plot twist this back to an ending. But I do think that As technology and online content continues to impact the real world, and that's the thing, right? User-generated content can have a real impact on the real world. And I think that's something that regulation is catching up to, which often happens with innovation. But it's often, you know, these regulations will often happen in hindsight after damage has been done, but they might be necessary. And I know that not everyone's going to like that. But I also think that regulations need to be created with experts involved that can say, okay, that's realistic, but that isn't. And not maybe not experts that have a vested interest in it, but there are plenty of people within, you know, online content moderation. I know several that would be great experts. I think I could definitely weigh in as well. I think that that's important for any regulation, whether it's on payment fraud, whether it's on, you know, content moderation or anything else, cybersecurity, et cetera. It may be important because for companies that are self-enforcing, they're they're often going to put profits over, you know, safety and protection, not maliciously, but that's how capitalism can work. But, you know, one way to avoid additional regulations is to work at keeping bad actors and false and harmful content off of platforms. If your platform has user-generated content, I would highly suggest sharing this article and possibly even this podcast episode if you think that your leadership will listen to all 40 minutes of this episode. 
you know, sharing it with your leadership to say, hey, this might be coming down the pike if we do things, if you have presence in the UK. And don't forget that there are so many other countries that are probably looking at this and thinking, huh, good idea. How can we model it within our existing laws? And, you know, for the US, it's the Constitution, but, you know, the other countries, it's different frameworks. It's good to help your company understand the impacts of not moderating content or preventing fraud, because when you don't do it, that's when it's noticed, right? It's kind of, I've said this before, and I need to come up with a better analogy, but fighting fraud and moderating content and, you know, moderating abuse and all of that is kind of like dusting. Nobody really notices it until it's not done. And we don't want people to notice it at that point, right? So it's trying to keep it kind of hidden or keeping the furniture dusted, so to speak. I, if you have a better analogy, feel free to share with me. <laughs> but also just remember, like, this is proposed legislation. This is the first phase. I'm sure that this headline caught a lot of attention with the impacted companies. And so there probably will be some bargaining and compromises behind the scenes. But I do think that even if your company isn't providing, it doesn't allow user-generated content right now or, or maybe not ever, keep it handy for the next time leadership doesn't support new efforts, right? This is what can happen if we don't keep our customers safe or if we don't police ourselves or when you want to introduce new technology to further reduce harmful content online or fraud online, right? This, again, this is what can happen if we don't put something new in place. I would love to hear what you all think about this. This is one of those topics that I'd love to get more of your opinions on, especially because I acknowledge that I, after this last year of my life, am a little biased. So I'd love to hear what you guys think. Is it fair for Ofcom in the UK to consider this legislation? Is it too restrictive or not enough? Are you concerned about more government regulations from other companies in the future? I know that regulations are a good and bad thing always because it does mean more work. But like I said, there are regulations in anti-money laundering. There are regulations in banking. They're becoming more regulations and attention on crypto and other areas of fintech. It's only a matter of time before more comes into e-commerce. So let's brace ourselves. But with that really sunshiny episode, I apologize, but sometimes we just have to do that. I hope that you all have a good rest of the week and I will talk to you when I come out with the interview on Tuesday. And thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.